us the events of the what we call Palm Sunday. It's also found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And then it's also found in Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 44. But I love Palm Sunday, and I'm beginning to, the, the older I get and the longer I pastor, the more I realize how important what was going on on that day is for us to realize you know, there's some things that happen, and this might be true with everything, where so many times things are going on and you, you and I don't even know half of it. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes, for example. You know how Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's all kinds of things going on behind the scenes. And only God looks down and really sees the full picture. Because he doesn't just see the actions and the words that people say. He sees our heart motives, and you and I, we just experience things based on face value, what we hear, what we see, what we presume to be true, uh, you know, and sometimes we don't realize, most of the time, we don't realize what's going on. So on Palm Sunday, there was so much going on. Now, the narrative is simply this, Jesus, in, in fulfillment of prophecy, had them go and get a donkey, actually two donkeys, and they came. And then he ceremonially rode the donkey into Jerusalem. And to the, to the naked eye, this looked like nothing but good times. I mean, people were praising Jesus. They were making this big pomp and, and pageantry about him coming in, you know, clothing the way like this is some great leader coming in on a donkey and Hosanna, they're praising the Lord. And it, it just looks like everything was honky-dory. I know that's not... That, but it really looked like a phenomenal... This is a great thing. That's why it's called the triumphal entry. But when you begin to peel back the layers, there was so much going on here that now we know. And there were so many different people involved. And so Palm Sunday is, is, has become the day of the year that I get to talk about, and I really like it, it, it talk about expectations. Because that's what Palm Sunday is all about when you look at what's going on. You know what expectations are? Expectations are, in fact, to, to use sometimes the Hebrew word in the, in the Old Testament, this is translated expectations, uh, is also called uh, translated hope. So expectations are things that we hope for. Expectations are literally things that we wait for. We are expecting. You've heard of when a, when a woman gets pregnant, they call her an expectant mother. What's she expecting? Pretty obvious, right? The bump gets bigger and bigger. Something's going to happen, you know? In fact, we're just looking for that. So we... We all have expectations. A lot of times, we don't even realize what our expectations are. Someone once said that expectations are hidden demands that we place upon others and upon God. And, and that's true. Expectations are hidden demands, and they're even hidden from us. How do you know that you have hidden demands? 
You ever been disappointed by someone? And maybe it was not even something that was spoken between the two of you, but you had certain expectations, certain things you thought that they would do, certain things you were waiting for them to do, and then they never did them, and you got disappointed. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13 and, 12, and verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. You ever been really disappointed because you got excited about something and then it never came to fruition? Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But the Bible says when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. So that's like hope, or, or excuse me, expectations in this context, when the desire comes, so that's what expectations are. We have a desire of things that are going to happen. Now, many times the word expectation and the word hope are used in the same context. So, listen to some of these verses. Paul said this, and this is my life verse, Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. So, he uses those two words together. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 28. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. You use tandemly. Proverbs 11 11 and verse 7. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. So we all have expectations And on this day, on Palm Sunday, when you look at the people involved, it's like the clash of expectations. You've got the Jews, the people of God, the disciples, especially the zealots, who were, they were sick and tired of Roman oppression. They did not like being under Roman rule. Rome Rome was pretty notorious for being brutal, And the Jews had been living under that for a long time. And so what became sweeter to them every year was the promise of a Messiah. That would be a a reigning king to come and deliver them and bring in the kingdom. And they were looking for that. So they had, you know, all the Jews and especially the disciples, they're looking for a king. Then you got the Pharisees. Totally different scenario totally different motive in fact that's your expectations really are intimately connected with your your desires what you love so the pharisees love power they love power and you know herod who was kind of like the somewhat ruling you know uh, political leader was jewish and 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 so they were looking now they viewed jesus christ as a threat Because everyone's talking about this king of the Jews. And they saw, literally they saw their grip of power slipping away. And so their expectation was, we got to get rid of this threat. Eventually, their expectations were placed upon Pilate. Maybe he can help us with our expectation and remove this threat. So you got the Jews who are looking for a king... You've got the religious leaders who are looking for someone to help remove this threat. And then you've got Jesus Christ himself. Totally different desires. He's looking to do God's will. 
And he knows, at this point, he knows that what is ahead for him is the cross. And so there's a somewhat of an undertone. If you just look at the, the um, surface, the outward, what's going on, you would think that this is like Jesus' high point in his ministry. Like, oh, he must be so happy. Look at that. He's riding in as a king, and people are taking things and putting them in. You know, there's this great pageantry, and they're saying, Hosanna to the sun, and they're thinking, this is wonderful. And you'd think this should be, Jesus should just be like, this is great. This is great. I'm finally in my position where I should be. But there was an undertone of sorrow. Because he had already realized, and we'll see by a verse, at least one verse today, we're going to see where he had already set his mind on the fact that he was rejected as a Messiah. Remember the Bible says in John chapter 1, he came unto his own, that's the Jews, and his own received him not. So he was already looking past this day. And, and there was some sadness there, as we'll see, because after the triumphal entry, it was a time of tears at the loss, at the rejection of Israel. So he was looking to Calvary. So I want to ask you something. What are you looking to? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Here's, here's, there's a psalm that comes to my mind and that's been... We need to keep this in mind. It's Psalm 62. You don't need to turn there. It is uh, one of four psalms that are dedicated to Jeduthun. Uh, and you'll see, you'll see that in the beginning of the psalm. The first one is Psalm 39, and then Psalm 62, and then there's two more later on. And by the way, the psalm to Jeduthun, Jeduthun is another name for Ethan. Isn't that interesting? Ethan. And this, David says this in the psalm, in Psalm 62 and verse 5. He says, My soul, wait thou only upon God for my expectation is from him. That's it. I want you to think about that. Because really that, that's going to play into mind. When we look at our expectations, David said, My soul, wait thou only upon God. Now that's what an expectation is. It's what we're waiting for. It's what we're anticipating. Remember the Jews anticipating, throwing off Roman rule. The Pharisees anticipating the removal of a threat. Jesus anticipating Calvary. You and I have probably hundreds. I would never have thought this until recently. I'm realizing that my life and our life, everyone's life, is made up of just all these. We all have so many expectations. We have expectations for our kids. We have, you know, our, our, but because I was thinking about that, and then I have to remind myself, you know what? My parents had expectations for me. And you know what? Being a Baptist pastor was not one of them. Did I, you know, did I mean to disappoint my parents? Not at all. And I know that I did. And I know, you know, they still talk to me. I'm so grateful for that. They did not want me to be a... That probably would have been the last thing on their desire for me. But I'm reminded of Luke chapter 2, I believe it is, where Jesus is only 12 years old. They go to Jerusalem, and then they're leaving Jerusalem, and Jesus sneaks away 
unbeknownst to his family, and he's back in the temple teaching. Twelve-year-old teaching the Hebrew, the leaders, the scholars. And when they finally found out that Jesus wasn't with them as they were traveling back, Mary, you know, they got all worried and they, they went to Jesus and in a sense they scolded him. You know what Jesus said? He, he, in fact, he didn't. He wasn't like, Mom, I'm so sorry I did wrong. We're talking about Jesus here. He said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? So, folks, you and I might not live up to the expectations. In fact, count on it. You will not, there will be people that you will disappoint. But what God expects for us, that should be our desire. Jesus said, I do always those things which please my Father. And when it was all said and done, He said, I have. Finish my course. I've done the things that my father wanted of me. That's what I want to be able to say. I won't know until I get to heaven. Because, you know, Charlie mentioned this this morning, you know, about God's will. When we get to heaven, that's what we're going to find out. But you and I have a good idea whether we're walking with the Lord or not, whether we're fulfilling his will, don't we? So let's jump in. Let's look at these. We've got three expectations, three groups of people that are looking and they're putting their expectations uh, on Jesus, in a sense. Let's look at it first. Turn to Matthew 21. Because we just read in Mark chapter 11 about uh, the disciples were told to go and get get a donkey, actually two donkeys, and bring it, and it was going to be a fulfillment of the Scriptures. In fact, here's where in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 4, the first few verses, it's basically a repeat of what we read in Mark chapter 11. Then in Matthew 21 and verse 4, Matthew says, All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Now he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the fowl of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. Now this is interesting because the prophets of old painted a clear picture of the Messiah. And up until the first century, the Jews were more fixated because of what they wanted to see. Because really there were two aspects of the Messiah that were brought out in Scripture. In fact, the Jews wouldn't catch on to that until the first and second century, where they actually came up with a different theory that there were two Messiahs which ended up by 400 A.D., it culminated in the Talmud, which was Jewish tradition. And by then, it's well documented in there that the rabbis were teaching that there's two messiahs. But up until that time, they're only looking for one messiah, and that's the messiah to reign and rule and and deliver us from Roman oppression. They didn't even really consider the suffering messiah. And, And eventually... Because they rejected Jesus, the Jews had to come up with a theory, and they came up with the two contradictory messiahs. But you know what? That first century, they were all about deliverance from Rome. And when the idea came that Jesus might be that messiah, expectations were high. Now, Jesus had just uh, healed, or not healed, resurrected Lazarus. And this was a high point for him where, 
you know, people were saying, wow, this, there's something to Jesus. Maybe our desire, maybe what we want to get out from Roman oppression, maybe it's going to happen in this person, Jesus. So, we read in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 8. Matthew 21 verse 8. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. It's an interesting term. Whenever a, a Jewish person would appeal to the government for redress of grievances, they would use this word, Hosanna, which literally means save now. In other words, address, uh, you know, deliver us from oppression. Uh, redress our grievances, that kind of a thing. That's the word Hosanna, save now. And so this this emotional high, if you and I were just along the road watching, we would think, wow, what's all the fuss here? Oh, look at that, Jesus is on a donkey. And if we could get the vibe, we would see that their expectations were high and all their expectations were wrapped up in this person, Jesus. But folks, remember, what's a, what is an expectation? It is a hidden demand. And probably many of them would not have articulated it. But they were really counting on Jesus to do something. Even whether they articulated it or not. They were putting their hope in Jesus. Not because necessarily they knew this was God's man and they wanted to find out what God's plan was. They already had God's plan made up and it was going to be to deliver from Roman oppression. Somebody once said that today's expectations are tomorrow's resentments. That's true. Today's expectations are tomorrow's resentments. You know, I mentioned in the last few weeks, and we're going to pick up with this in two Sundays, but I, I, years ago I made this statement. I've said this recently on Sunday morning. I remember boldly proclaiming one time that People cannot let you down if people are not holding you up. And I remember going through that. And I remember I learned that years ago because I found myself being let down by people. But over the years now, the Lord has kind of modified that because I realize there's a flip side to that. I looked at Paul, and we'll go back to this text in 2 Timothy. You know, Paul was counting on certain people, wasn't he? He really was. He was counting on people. And, uh, and, you know, we need, the church needs, we need to depend on people. We need the Timothys and the Phoebes, uh, Romans 16. If you, we need those people that are helpers. That's what Timothy was. And when you and I find people that we think we can depend on, then we, we put some trust in them. We have expectations. Do we not? And by the way, some people act like the only legitimate disappointment is their disappointment toward others. You ever meet people like that? 
where their focus is how other people have let them down. They fail to even consider that, you know, there's a chance that you have disappointed other people. Did you ever think of that? You know, it's pretty self-centered to only look at how others affect you and not to give consideration about how you have affected others. Some people, I think some people can't seem to do that. In fact, that's why we call what Jesus taught the golden rule. And I, you know, what is the golden rule? Do unto others whatever you want. Now I was seeing who's following me. No, it's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So the challenge is, you know, the golden rule is, we do need to put ourselves in other people's place. And if you only go through life reacting how this affects me, how narrow-minded you are. Now, I hear a lot of people who, um, you know, they go to church and then they're like, I was really disappointed with that church. And, you, you know, you're welcome to do that. But it ever dawned on you that sometimes churches can be disappointed and People, you know, it's true. It can. I, I just, this, this came up. I, I might not apply here at all, but expectations are so huge. I remember I was talking to my, my best friend from high school. We have a thing in Westchester. I don't know if they're still doing it. It's called Brian's Run. Brian was actually a classmate of my wife's who um, was injured in a football accident, paraplegic, and so they started this Brian's Run. And shortly after high school, my best friend and I ran in Brian's Run. And we had this agreement. His name is Bill. We said, okay, Bill. And, and we had agreement together. We're going to run this together. Okay? Okay. I mean, we're going we're gonna to keep, keep pace together. And we're going to start together. And we're going to end together. Got it. It's good friends do. Run together. And so, and we, he, even during the race, we can, he confirmed that. We're together on this, right? Absolutely, Bill. And then we got close to the end. And all of a sudden, I got this idea in my mind that, you know, if we just, if I just sprint at the end, I can get the best time. And I, all of a sudden, I just forgot about our agreement. And I booked. And he has never forgiven me for it since then, either. He still brings it up. <laughs> in fact, I told him recently, I said, Bill, we need to go on another race where you sprint at the end, just so we can call it even. But expectations, I mean, they're so much a part of our life. You know, when people disappoint us, that's when we know, oh, I had some expectations on them. And expectations are huge. I love the story of um, David Brainerd. You ever heard of him? He has become, folks somewhat of a superhero in missionary circles. But I want to remind you, if you, if you know, let me just share a little bit about David Brainerd. He was a, a missionary to the American Indians in New York, New Jersey, and eastern Pennsylvania. He was born in 1718. He was born, he was, he's always had health problems. He was frail and sick. Uh, no missionary board today would have hired him or, or taken him on. He didn't even finish. He went to Yale but he ended up criticizing one of the professors, so he was expelled. By the way, later on, they um, dedicated 
a building and named it after after David Brainerd. It's the only building ever dedicated at Yale to an expelled student, you know. But um, and when he died, he he served the Lord on the mission field for three years. In fact, the first year, listen to what this entry in his journal, and he wrote this on um, May eighteenth, seventeen forty three. He said, my labor is hard and extremely difficult, and I have little appearance of success to comfort me. He went to the mission field with some expectations. Now, he stayed on the mission field for two more years. He was only on the mission field for three years. He saw a little more. He saw a few people get saved. But because of his health, he ended up dying of tuberculosis in 1747. And when he died... He really had nothing to show for it. He was not a big name. In fact, it was only after he died, he was good friends with Jonathan Edwards, who found his journal and then published it. And after he died, he became a phenomenal. I mean, David, if you've never read the journal of David Brainerd, it will bless you. This man walked with the Lord, had a major sense of his own unworthiness, had a burden for the Indians and the lost. He was a godly man. But I submit to you, at his funeral, he was, other than the fact that his best friend was Jonathan Edwards, and that's the only reason why, you know, that's how everyone would know him eventually. But he really was nothing to, nothing noteworthy. By the way, just within the last 10 or 11 years, it's another story that came out like David Brainerd. And it was, Started in the early 1900s, this missionary uh, from Canada was a medical missionary. Went to the Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Spent seven, his name was William Leslie. Spent about 17 years on the mission field. And it just seemed there was one obstacle after another. He, for 17 years, he went into remote villages and preached the gospel. And he came back basically a discouraged, defeated. You know, there was some conflict with the nationals there and he just came back lived i think maybe nine more years then he died and he died thinking he was a failure you ever heard this story i've shared it several times well about 84 years later which you're talking about not too long ago i think it was 14 years ago a group of missionaries or a group of of traveling they they went to investigate uh, the Congo, and, and there's a whole article. It's so fascinating. They wanted to see what kind of Christian influence was in the Congo area. They had certain thoughts about, but they really, when they studied it, it didn't look like really the gospel got into the Congo in certain areas. And then they were shocked. They went into all these remote villages, and there were these churches that were there. And they'd ask all these questions. And they found out that, okay, it, these churches are the result of some long-ago missionary, some Baptist missionary. They weren't even sure his name. And when they got, in fact, it was after they came back from their search that they started studying and found that it was that it was William Leslie. This guy went into Rome. He preached the gospel, but he sowed the seeds, and from that, all these people got saved. There were villages that had uh, one was like a, a stone cathedral. That in the 80s, uh, 1980s, all kinds of people got, got saved. And it was all goes back to this one missionary. And so it ends up, 
he wasn't such a failure after all. But I submit to you, his expectations were that he was going to see the results in his life. And we do that too, don't we? And then when we don't, when, when things don't match, match, match our expectation, we get disappointed. So let's real quickly, as we wrap up, then we have the religious leaders. We've already looked at the disciples and the, the Jews. They wanted deliverance from Rome. Then we have the religious leaders. And just, we, we won't read it. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 16. Matthew 21 is the very first time Jesus went into the temple and drove out the money changers. That happened twice. Matthew 21 is the first time it happened, and this was early on in his public ministry. This was right after he had turned the water into wine at the wedding feast, that he went in and he threw out the money changers, and then the people were praising him in Matthew 21, just like they would do in, in the, on, on Palm Sunday. And it says the chief priests and scribes, when they heard everybody praising Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David, they were very upset. They tried to silence him. The same thing happened on Palm Sunday. And we can read about that in, uh, in Luke 19. We won't turn there, but... You know, their, their expectations were purely selfish. Whereas Jesus, let's close with Jesus. Jesus knew, in fact, in Matthew 20, just listen to this, I know time's running out. Matthew chapter 20. He's getting ready to go into Jerusalem, and here's what Jesus said. This was before all the events of Palm Sunday. He said this to his disciples. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. He just gave them the plan of what God's plan was. So he knew. He knew before Judas betrayed him. He knew that the Jews were rejecting him. And so when you realize now this was ahead that they were going to have the, the triumphal entry, maybe it wasn't so triumphant after all. At least to Jesus. Everyone else is thinking, this is great. We're going to have the kingdom. Not so. Jesus was already, in fact, after that, in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem and he's weeping. He's weeping because he had been rejected. And he knew his next step was heading to Calvary. I want to read something that I read about the purpose of Jesus. You know, Jesus started his public ministry the last three years of his life. But when he was a child, in fact, the only, we don't know much about, we know that instance when he was 12 years old and he was in the temple. But I mean, there, most of the years that Jesus was on this earth, we don't know. We do know that he lived in the Roman culture. So, you know, he grew up in the atmosphere of the harsh political climate of Rome dominating the Jews. So this one writer said this. In fact, he called them the hidden years of his adolescence. During the hidden years of his adolescence and young adulthood, and certainly during his ministry, Jesus had seen much social injustice, much economic inequity, much deprivation and poverty, 
and much oppression and cruelty by the Romans. But his mission never focused on those things because they were not man's greatest problem. It was the far more severe problem of sin that Jesus had come to conquer. Men's problem with God is infinitely greater than their problems with other men. Isn't that a good statement? See, Jesus saw all this stuff, and he did some good, to, you know, healing and setting things right with his teaching. That was not his main mission. His main mission was to deal with the bigger problem of sin and our relationship to God. You have expectations. I have expectations. We all do. And, and more than you realize. Just think of this. Understanding that today's, today's expectations are tomorrow's resentments. Every time you start resenting something or get disappointed, step back and say, okay, uh, red flag here, I had some expectations. And then step back. And say, right, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? Sometimes our expectations are not, they weren't appropriate. Sometimes they're very appropriate and God is trying to teach us something. Here's the key. Just like on the day of Palm Sunday, your life and my life is a, a web of expectations. And you and I, we've got, that's why I go back and I'll close with this. That's Psalm, Psalm 62 and verse 5. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. Now this, let's go back to, I'll close with this. You remember I said this, that um, people won't let you down if, if they're not holding you up. And I shared some verses, how God is the one that upholds us. But then there is the flip side. That we do count on people? What's the balance? Here's, here's something just popped in my mind. I thought it was brilliant. You can tell me this is stupid. Um, but we tell people, like when it comes to parents, you know, parents, you get older kids, or your kids grow up and they go out of the house. And then there's so many times in America where um, they go through a hard time and they need to come back. And then a parent's, you know, a parent's like, what do I do? And I love this statement. I heard someone say, as a parent, you can be a safety net to your grown kids. Just don't ever be a hammock. I thought that was clever. I like that. That's a good point, isn't it? In other words, as a parent, you want to help your kids. What do you do? Do you say, oh, no, we, you, you're out of the house now. You can't come back. Sometimes we need, we need to be a safety net. Just don't be a hammock. Because some parents are hammocks, aren't they? You know? Oh, my son's 40. 50, and you know, he he's, hasn't gotten a job yet. That's the idea. Well, let's look at it this way. Because as I'm thinking about it, we do need people. We depend on people. We need, and, and when we depend on someone, when we start putting our trust in someone, we, we need them not to be a problem. So we depend on them more. But what did Paul experience? And again, we'll look at this in two weeks. People let him down. But the way he ended it, we'll probably look at this again in two weeks, is 
When he got to, he talked about Demas hath forsaken me. Cretans went this way. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. When, at my first answer, no man stood with me. All men forsook me. I mean, he's like, it's, it's very depressing. Oh, everybody's let me down. I've been hurt by so many people. You ever sung that song? But don't forget what he said. He said, notwithstanding. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So people can be a safety net. You know, we, we need to depend on people. We need the Timothys and the Phoebes in the world. We need to count on them. But when they let us down, that's when we realize, if you've been looking to people to be your hammock, only, G, only the Lord should be your hammock. I think it's a pretty good illustration there. In other words, our full trust needs to be in God. He's the one that upholds us. It doesn't mean we won't be let down. It doesn't mean we don't trust in people. And sometimes we can be majorly disappointed because our expectations aren't fulfilled. But that's when we have to teach ourselves, you know what, the Lord's, Lord's going to get me through. He's teaching me something through this. So people will let you down. You will let people down. But the Lord Jesus Christ will never let you down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, on this day that we think about all the different motivations that were going on and all the conflicting people expecting Jesus to do something. And, and yet, Father, you are the whole time unfolding your plan, even as you do in our lives. And so, Father, sometimes things that people mean for good, you mean, or people mean for evil, you mean for good. So help us, Father, to put our expectation only in you. And we'll thank you for it. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.